Welcome to the Ringer Podcast Network. I'm Liz Kelly. Make sure to subscribe to the Ringer's YouTube channel to watch the newest episode of Slow News Day with Kevin Clark featuring NFL MVP Lamar Jackson. And in anticipation of the NBA's return in late July, NBA Desktop with Jason Concepcion is back to posting weekly episodes. Also up on our YouTube channel are the best clips taken from this week's Bill Simmons podcast, Rewatchables, and Higher Learning with Rachel Lindsay and Van Lathan. You can find all these videos at youtube.com slash The Ringer. Stay close. This play on the inside, this play on the outside. We got, we got it all covered. I don't give a shit about drugs. Littering pisses me off, though, so you can pick that shit up when I'm gone. You be asking for me? Jesus, Barry and Joseph. What's for dinner? Fuck you, officer. What a surprise. really should have called this episode How to Finesse because it was a whole lot of finessing van going on. <laughs> you know that is saying? so crazy you said that. I have underlined making moves. Making moves. Making moves. Every, finessing. Everybody is everybody. making moves in this episode. Yeah, I mean, you got the Greeks contact, Double G, finessing Nikki and Ziggy to get some chemicals. Mm-hmm. I'm shocked that none, neither one of them was like, this might be building a bomb. Right. <laughs> It never occurred to them, you know, like it's 2003. Yeah. Like, well, like somebody you know says we need a bunch of chemicals. I'm like, oh, OK, well, Post 9/11, right, cool. just say, right. Yeah. You know, so they, they did. They seem their their in curiosity was very alarming to me. Uh, you, of course, have Avon and Levy finessing the system. Um, Daniels finessing uh, Purell Burel. Um, and he, Daniel's even finessing Kima a little bit to get back on this detail. So, like yep. you said, a lot of people are just making moves. Anybody else making moves in this one that stood out? Jimmy finessing bubbles. Yeah. This is the episode where everyone has a clear goal and we see the machinations that they go through in order to, like, attain that goal. Like, Bunk needs Omar. He's gone to Jimmy. Jimmy finally decides to do it. We're going to get major crimes back up. Everybody wants something. They're going through what they have to go through to get it in this episode. Yeah, definitely a, a whole lot of very crafty maneuvering. Uh, and here's the central recap of what happened. As I mentioned, Nikki and Ziggy, um, they meet up with Double G, who is a contact, an associate of the Greek, and he wants them to continue their heisting ways. Uh, but Frank Sabaka, uh, Nikki's uncle, Ziggy's father, he has found out about the camera heist. And Yes. Yep, and he's a little pissed about it. Um, but not pissed enough to necessarily do anything other than be pissed. But but he's mm-hmm. pissed. He's but he knows now. And Nikki finds himself getting a little deeper into the criminal world. Main thing is Daniels gets the band back together. What kept you? Yeah, uh, you got Kima, Hurt, uh, Freeman soon to be, he doesn't know yet. And Prez, they all are coming back on the unit to work the Sabaka case, which they don't even think is a case right now. And that's Probably, you know, that's pretty much what these last couple episodes is kind of set up is this cross point of where they finally find out there is really some great, there's a great case to be made involving uh, the Sabakas and the port and uh, the union itself. Avon, I have to give Avon a lot of credit. He came up with kind of a genius plan to get that yeah, sentence down. Like, th- that shit was good. <laughs> I mean, to be honest with you, that was this, a chef's this kiss. kind of... Right. This is the one that kind of shows you we've seen kind of Avon's gangster flex and we've seen his genius in little. We we mostly see Avon's genius and Avon's kind of street eye 
when it comes to reprimanding someone else for something that they've done, right? So they did something that Avon goes, why would you think that, like Stringer, like why would you think that would be happening with Orlando? Like how's, where he's going to get the money from? But we've never really seen the devious plotting skills of Avon Barksdale giving you insight into just how he took over the West Baltimore drug trade. You know what I mean? Not really. We've seen it in a couple of ways, but this is one of the ones I'll let you know. This dude's got it up here, too. It's not just Stringer making those moves. Avon is the one who's not just a gangster, but the thinker as well. Yeah, because everybody is just so intent on giving Stringer all the credit for being the mastermind. And Avon here with a flawless plan that, unlike Stringer's plan, doesn't actually fall apart. <laughs> okay. Right. Yeah. Um, but it was a pretty smooth maneuvering on Avon's part. He gets the correct. He takes care. And then the, this is the genius part of his plan. He takes care of multiple problems at once. The corrections officer only came to light because he was in WeeBay shit. Right. right. And so he needed to handle that for WeeBay. He gets D'Angelo off drugs at the same time. Right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. This was really a chef's kiss plan. I'm, I'm I'm serious. And then he gets his own sentence reduced. He tried to get D'Angelo's sentence reduced as well as they use planting drugs on this uh, CO kind of to their advantage. And Levy is able to get his parole hearing moved up to one year and uh, get him credit for cooperating to bring down a dirty corrections officer, even though the people in the room know that Avon was behind this, that he planted the drugs. The fact is they have to make the case they can make and they can't worry about the one they can't. And so right. put it and, on a tray and, for him. In that situation, is, uh, uh, another testament to him is he puts him and Levy put them in a situation to where they have to choose and they have to choose basically what is a, a, a gigantic sort of black eye news story uh, for the correctional department, which is the deaths of all of those guys and maybe more deaths. He essentially holds them hostage or whether or not they're going to take the information um, and cut the deal with somebody who uh, is a known drug kingpin. And as the one police officer says, the state police officer guy says, probably the guy who planted the hot shots, who spiked the package in the first place. But when you press somebody in between, um, you know, a rock and a hard place, that's when you kind of see, that's when you can kind of lean on them. And Avon and Levy do that like flawlessly uh, in, in getting him out of jail. And look, him- Avon helps them out too because the fact is he didn't plant drugs that weren't already being brought in. The dude was bringing yeah. in drugs. He spiked the package. He just spiked the package, know. right. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And there would have been nothing to spike had he not been bringing in the drugs to begin with. So right. even though the unfortunate part it does resorted some overdoses and some human casualties uh, right. but he did ultimately get them what they wanted which is the person bringing in the drugs so right and for d'angelo for d'angelo it's just another example because remember one of his his little comic book homies uh was a guy who 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 overdosed right the the ultimate superman excuse me ultimate spider-man regular amazing spider-man guy someone that he had had a little bit of a kinship with um, you see them communicating in one scene. That guy dies now, right? You see, and you see them in another scene. They were kind of getting high together. So once again, no matter what Avon does, that is devious, masterminding, uh, amazing criminal. It always has a human cost, and that human cost is always thrust into the face of D'Angelo. It's almost as if Avon does something 
that is a like a genius stroke criminally, and then the bodies are dumped directly at D'Angelo's feet. He sees them. He saw he saw them with uh, Avon's girlfriend, uh, one of his exes from the first season. He saw them with Wallace. Saw them with the girl at the party. Uh, like all of these things, all of it's just dumped right at D'Angelo's feet. And this is the episode where he's just had enough of the meat market. And he says as much. Now, things are he's maneuvering on the outside in the on the inside. But on the outside, things are uh, going a little haywire. The Atlantic package that they worked hard to secure is bullshit, which means Stringer has to figure out another way to keep the Barksdale drug organization afloat. Uh, BD Freeman and Bunk, they are making their unwelcome presence known at the docks, um, trying to rattle some port workers so they can find out some m- more information about what happened to the girls in a can, as they're referred to on the wire. And we got Omar making an appearance. Bubbles, yes, fi- Bubbles finds him, quote in air quotes, <laughs> if you will, more like he mm-hmm. found Bubbles. And uh, now McNulty. Finally has Omar, uh, which he has promised to deliver to the bunk. Is this this our first bubbles of the season? I think it is. This is the first bubbles of the season. Yep. And we see him. He's in good form. Oh, Johnny. is. He's in Olympic form. I mean, they steal his shit out of of Foot Locker. Yeah. Johnny's letting his hair grow out. They get Walkmans. He is in good form, man. I love to see bubbles. The show isn't complete if bubbles isn't involved. So this is kind of, to me... Almost the pilot episode of this uh, of of season two because yeah. we finally. It's not get an episode unless there's bubbles in it. <laughs> unless it doesn't count unless you got some bubbles, man. <laughs> Heroin, Batman, and Robin. See, I corrected. Heroin, Batman. There we go. I corrected it. I don't want to put disrespect on their drug. My bad. We're gonna take a a, a little deeper look at Nikki Sabatka, and yeah. let me tell you, in one just scene. You see that the struggle for him is so real. My man sleeping in a twin bed with his baby mama. Yeah. Who he can't bring upstairs because his parents are decent people. Right. And that struggle is so real right there. That's a big deal. And number one, it's a lot of big deals in that scene. But like it it uh <laughs> but like Nikki Nikki Sabaka, uh it, like in that situation. She even says, we have a kid together. Right. Like, like your parents like, know we get down. They yeah, got a great like, child. <laughs> yeah, like we have a like we have a kid together. Um, and what you get there is a good look at not just the desperation, but a little bit of the shame of poverty. Yes. And how it strips yes. away at your pride and what you think. It just a, a little bit of fact, it just it's not just I think sometimes people um look at poverty as like uh what it just what it is that you can't buy. Poverty is not just about what it is that you can't buy. It's about what it is that you don't have. And when and it's not just material things. It's it's pride, it's sense of self, it's sense of worth, uh, it's comfortability. It's um like, you know, for it's always interesting, like you're living at home with your mom and stuff, you can't give as much in your relationship or even take as much in your relationship because you just don't have shit. Your girl can't get up and walk around in her panties and do all of that. You can't, you can't do anything like that. And now those are, I know that those are creature comforts and they come way behind food, but f- poverty takes so much of the human experience away from people. But that's a, that's a self-worth thing. Um, a quick sidebar question I have for you, uh, Van. Mm-hmm. Um, 
when you go home, uh, when you go back to Baton Rouge with your significant other, can you and your significant can you and your significant other stay in your mom's house in yeah. the same in the same bed in the same bed? My mom not like that. She's decent people. Oh no no no! My mom my mom not listen. My mom would listen. No, when I say she's not like that, I mean my mom ain't decent. Oh okay, mom, she's not like okay. I uh, thought you meant like you you couldn't. Brought a girl home, Baton Rouge. Mentioned it once a show. I think the year is two thousand and. Five, bring a girl to my mother and my grandmother's house. The margaritas are flowing. LSU football is on. My mother looks at this girl and she goes, so let me ask you something. Sexually, does my son please you? And you lying. True story. Like sexually, does he please you? And uh, and this girl, I'm not going to say her name. She freezes, freezing up. And I'm like, let me tell you something. If you don't answer her, this is going to go on for hours and days. This will become a narrative. Answer her. And then they proceed to have a conversation while I am there about our sex life. And my mother says, I taught my son very early on the value of cunnilingus, the value of pleasing a woman. And I just want to make sure that these are things that in his life right now, he is applying. True story. That is my mom. Shout out to Mrs. Lathan. Miss, Miss, Miss Crystal. She, she dropped the Lathan. She Crystal that. Ellis. Yeah, she, Crystal Ellis. She wrote Shout a book out called. to Miss Crystal Ellis. She wrote a book called Huzzy. Huzzy is the name of the book. <laughs> my mother's I'm buying this today. I'm buying this today. <laughs> Van, you keep on. I'm, I'm loving that I'm learning this. Anyway, We're about to but, make Huzzy a bestseller. Huzzy. Huzzy is the name of the book. She wrote a book called Huzzy. My mom is very free, but not like Sabaka. That's why I say the shame of not having, you can just tell that it's weighing in on Nikki Sabaka. And that scene where he wakes up in that cramped basement apartment, such good writing by Simons and Burns, just to like let you know exactly what it is he's trying to escape. And we see later on in that episode, them go look at a house. Um, and when they go look at a house, it looks he they get a look, you get a look at what the escape would be too. You get a look at what uh, a life not living in poverty would be, and how close it is that Halm had been in his in his family. It was his aunt's house. How close it is is just a couple of blocks away, but it seems like an eternity away. And I think his kind of struggle with that is a look into the struggle of the American working man and woman. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, and it, it, we also get introduced to his father in this episode. And what you can see is a lot of resentment that Nikki has. And his, the scene they have with his father, that who's in the bar, who has developed his own gambling system, in which he keeps the tallies of the wins and losses in horse, in, in horse racing, but he never actually gambles any money. That he's just sort of playing for... Uh, entertainment for himself just to know what what could have been possible and it was very symbolic to me because Nikki has decided that he's just not gonna sit on the outside and let poverty happen to him the way that it's happened to people that he knows people in his own family he's about to get in the mix and get in the game and better his life and I sense there's a resentment from him toward his family and toward this way of life because I'm sure he had been brought up being told that you go, you work at the ports, you make a good living. 
It'll always be there for you. He was brought up under this false sense of security that this was an industry that was going to last forever. They bring him into this life only for him to discover not only is this shit not lasting forever, it's dying rapidly. And he has not, he doesn't have a lot of other options as to what to do. And I think for people who maybe are not familiar of what it's like to come up and say an industry family, they don't understand that the idea of going outside of that world, of that enclave, never occurs to them. And I know that seems probably bizarre to some people say, well, why didn't he just go to college or why didn't he just do that? Because that's not what they do. They go work on the port. That's that's the end game, you know, right there. It's no different you know, with me uh, growing up in Detroit. People graduate from high school. Some of them don't. And then they go work for the plant. That's what they do. And so... Uh, unless you understand that kind of cycle, it's hard for you to get like how he gets, uh, you know, why this port and, and why this particular business is is kind of his livelihood and his lifeblood. Um, so, and by the way, in West Baltimore, that's become the drug trade, right? Right. So, so like it, it, what you're talking about right there is so absolutely true, and I think the Wire does a great job of showing that those industries, um, uh, they sort of vacillate from being a, a, a good, strong American steel, um, you know, all of that stuff, ports to dope. And it, there are certain places that, you, you know, where you where you are, where you don't graduate uh, high school and go work at the plant. You graduate elementary school and you go to the street. So <laughs> even if you graduate that. So, um, yeah, like a, a lot of this has to do with a lot of the overarching stories are about how you are indoctrinated and initiated into these industries that just exist where you are. I also find it interesting that, um, and I, I, you know, they explore this a little bit in this season, but I find it interesting that Nick and that Nikki has a better relationship with his uncle than he does with his father. I mean, his father, he definitely respects and he looks up to, but he feels like he has to hide so much of, of what he wants, his ambitions and all that from his father. Cause he knows his father's really old, old school. Cause I think his father is a shipyard worker. Whereas with his uncle, he can be more of himself and frankly, to be more honest about the condition that he's in. Cause we start yeah. this particular episode at the beginning where he's telling Frank that, it, you know, his, his reminiscent, his nostalgia for these glory days of when they had ships coming in all the time and work was good. Like that shit is your recollection. It's not a reality. The reality right. is that I'm working five days a month. That's the reality. Right. And yeah. so he has the kind of honest conversation that frankly he should probably be having with his father. And, yeah. but he's having it with Frank. And I, I just find it interesting that they have uh, more of a relationship and it's two ways because Frank treats him more like a son then he does Ziggy for sure. You know, he has no problem humiliating Ziggy and making him feel like less than, but he doesn't do that to Nikki. So it's just an interesting kind of three-way dynamic that's there. Yeah, it happens sometimes. Sometimes, you know, it, it like, especially between fathers and sons, you know, a dad might see something in you and then opt out of rearing you in a certain way, right? Uh, we talked about this a little the last time, but if they see, I've seen this before, <laughs> it's, and it's sometimes unfortunate when it happens. Um, if if a, if if it's natural for a father to see something else in somebody, I've seen it happen. Really, to be honest with you, 
with friends of guys' sons, right? I've seen a dad like really be interested in like uh one of his homeboys, one of his son's homeboys, because they're so good at what they do. And let me let me hand you down this game and let me give you this. And they sometimes try to fill in. Like if you're if you're Sabaka and you seen that Ziggy's gone left, right? You can't get Ziggy back. Uh, there is no no hope for him. You might try to 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 do all the things that you would have wanted to do with Ziggy had he been a little bit more like you with Nikki. Um, and then that's how the resentment kind of starts between the cousins. That's also how you get somebody who's always pounding his chest or very in a very real way. Ziggy's whole life is about showing the world how big his dick is. Yeah. That's it. Like that's in a very real way. He is. And, and even though that also is symbolic, it's very symbolic yeah. in a very real way. He has to let everybody know that there's more to me. I'm girthier than what it is that you can see. Like, I'm not just this little rail thing. Like he's doing that. He, every single place, that's what he leads with. Um, and as far as Nikki's concerned, he doesn't really lead with anything that's superficial. Not no flash. He the only thing that he wants is substance. He wants something real. He wants a real foundation. He wants a real family. As much as she's dragging him towards it, uh, he wants a real place to lay his head, and he wants a real life. Doesn't care who sees it. Doesn't care what the glitz and the glamour is. He wants a real life. And as, and as a matter of fact, not only does he want it, but he probably feels in a way entitled to it because so many of the guys that have worked at the docks prior to him that's what they had so many of the guys in the union that have more seniority are getting more days in him that's what they had and so i think you know it's sort of a microcosm of the psyche of the american worker whereas you're going in day in and day out and the question you're asking yourself is when is it going to be my turn and that's the question that nikki sabaka is asking himself throughout the course um of this season and he's trying to force it he's trying to force his turn when's it going to be my turn for the good life um and it you know gets him in a little trouble so I, I think David Simon um, constructed the Sabakas in a way that where you would purposely draw parallels with the Barksdales because I, I think he wanted to show, I wanted you to see how that the, some of the things that came up with the Barksdales, that these are universal themes and not just because it's this, sure. you know, all black drug dealer family out of Baltimore, that there's a lot of relatability to people who are supposedly, quote, decent people. Now, Alan Seppenwall is a, fantastic television and movie critic and he floats a theory and I'm gonna float it to you and see if you if you buy this and and mostly in some of the the, the criticism he's written on the wire all of which has been good he floated the theory that Nikki Sabaka is really D'Angelo do you buy this and he the the, the reason he he compares them because he sees two men born into a family into a lifestyle Neither one of them asked for. D'Angelo, as we know, as we see in this episode, he is trying to completely break away from his uncle. So is Nikki Sabaka, trying to completely break away from his uncle and start his own thing. And even though D'Angelo's striving to get clean, if you will, and by that I don't mean the drugs, but he's just does he's sick of the murders, the this and all that other stuff. And uh, Nikki Sabaka is getting deeper into a criminal world, which Frank does not want for him. So do you feel like these two characters have any symmetry? Yeah, I, I see the comparison. I, I think that they are fundamentally different in, in in many ways as well, though. I see the comparison just in terms of the family dynamic, um, the powerful uncle, 
uh, the mechanism by which they kind of come to the decisions that they that they come to. Um, but I I see different trajectories in what they want. Uh, it, like there is a brutality and a reality of the West Baltimore drug trade that uh, D'Angelo just wants to be completely free of. Yeah. It's not even about money, cash, or whatever. D'Angelo would be, in my estimation, completely happy uh, being a cold 50 at Walmart somewhere, making a good living for himself and his family if he didn't have to deal with the way people are hurt and the way people are exploited in, in his chosen profession or not even in his chosen profession, in his inherited profession. So he would be completely okay working at Petco or like being a, 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 an average American worker as long as he didn't have to be uh, in proximity to that type of, um, that type of degradation. Sabaka is different in that he doesn't really care about any of that. What he wants is a, a sort of financial freedom um, and whatever that has to come along with getting that, like he's probably down for it. I'm not saying that he would necessarily murder anybody or, or that he would be okay with a bunch of murders, but whatever Uncle Frank is selling, I mean, he's with it. I mean, he's not like he's he's with trying to rise up out of his situation. I don't see him necessarily, if things were going good at the docks and he had to be in, in close proximity to Frank Sabaka and all the stealing and all the stuff that they were doing, there's no moral sort of line that he's drawing there. He's not drawing a moral line at all. The only line that he's drawing is a line of there's not enough for me. So I can't be a part of this because there's not enough for me. Um, that would be almost like saying D'Angelo would be cool with everything that was going on around him if he was making more bread. It's not about money for him. It's about his the freedom of his soul. And I don't think Nikki Sabaka has those same type of moral hurdles to jump. I think that it's all about the bottom line for him. And he, it, it, I mean, he wants to be a better provider. He wants to 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 be uh, more of a um, of an economic sort of. Uh, uh, I guess he wants to be more reliable economically to the people around him, but I don't think he's making any sort of uh, distinctions about like what his soul can handle. And that, that to me was D'Angelo's central character. I think they're both chasing freedom in, in, in two different ways in two different directions. D'Angelo is chasing mental freedom. Nikki Sabaka is chasing financial freedom because he feels like that's the cure for everything. That shame of poverty that he has been experiencing. But I think the biggest differences in their character is that uh, Nikki Sabaka is much more ruthless, I think, than D'Angelo is. Because even before being confronted with the sins of his uncle and even being mixed in that game, D'Angelo wasn't really built for it. I mean, he was only built to a certain degree for it. Like, he could run the pit, but he wanted he wanted something that wasn't realistic. You can't be in the drug game with no collateral damage. Like, that's just not right. going to happen. And yeah. Nikki is completely okay with the collateral damage, I think, as long as he gets what he wants. And I don't think D'Angelo is nearly as selfish as Nikki Sabaka seems to be. And even though it yeah. might be selfish for the right reasons, it's like he's trying to be a provider. He's trying to better his life. He's trying to, you know, kind of rescue himself. It, it, he still does a lot of selfish things to achieve his end goal. And D'Angelo's not really like that. And yeah. I know that, you know, maybe you can make some 
you know, kind of comparison to not necessarily Ziggy is not nearly as innocent as Wallace, but that, you know, much like D'Angelo kind of started taking care of Wallace, that Nikki is trying to kind of trying to look after uh, Ziggy. But even that's not really the same. You know, he's not really invested in that way. And even his investment in his baby mama is kind of conditional. Yeah. You definitely get a sense that like he cares about her, but that's a lot of that is based off a strong sense of obligation because of their situation. And how he's perceived. A yeah. lot of it a lot yeah, a lot a lot of it is based on the fact that, you know, he wants to be perceived as being more of a success. He wants more. But it's not like he wants her or necessarily that he even wants his daughter. Uh, um, not saying that he doesn't want either of them, but what he wants is more out of his life and he feels like they are a part of that. Uh, it's interesting what you said earlier, like not being able to handle the collateral damage. I think that defines a lot of the characters in The Wire. Um, when we were graduating high school, I had a homie that uh, that was uh, going to the Marines. We were sitting down and we were talking to my dad about it. And he was talking about all the things that like, you know, the Marines were going to bring him. Which shout out to everybody that's uh, in the armed forces doing their things. Like uh, uh, this kid was unbelievably brave, and you guys are unbelievably brave too. But I remember my father is uh, was sitting down and was going, "Yeah, all of that, you know, college is great, all of that stuff like that." But just remember that when you join the Marines, you got to be ready to kill somebody <laughs> because that is what Marines do. <laughs> so. If you want to be a mechanic, I would suggest you go to mechanic school. <laughs> right, that might be if better. Like, oh, <laughs> right, if you like, if 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 you want to, if if you want to go to college, I would suggest that you do a couple years at Baton Rouge Community College and then try to go to Southern or LSU. Uh, if those are your reasons for doing it, but if you want to, if you want to defend the, defend your country, help your nation, and and have an honorable life. Go to the Marines, but realize that you might have to stick a gun in somebody's face. And I think that is kind of a question asked of D'Angelo and of Nikki Sabaka. Like, if you want to be a part of this, if you want to do this, these are the things that you might have to do. And are you okay with that? And I think that we see over the course of this season, Nikki kind of understand all the levels by which a criminal is made. <laughs> you know what I mean? He starts to understand everything that you have to be to actually be a successful criminal and keep the money coming in, you know, what has to happen to some people um, and and, and kind of how you have to live that life. And a lot of the season is about whether or not he can accept everything uh, that he needs to do once he gets deeper and deeper and deeper in. Yeah. Frank too, by the way. A little more sympathy for, uh, for D'Angelo. And maybe it is about the, the in-game pursuit. Uh, mm -hmm. for Nikki largely it's about money and not saying that that's a bad pursuit necessarily but I just um, yeah it just I, I have a little bit more sympathy for D'Angelo um, than I do for some of the things that Nikki actively chooses uh, to get involved with in his furthering criminal uh, connection all right um, so beyond Nikki what were some of your favorite moments best scenes best Ooh. lines from this episode okay um <laughs> You got a textbook over there. <laughs> I do. Uh, I love the dinner scene. The dinner scene where, okay, so Marla is now. The montage, so Daniels, as they call it. The montage, yeah. Daniels and Kima have both decided that they're going to sleep on their respective couches indefinitely. <laughs> so uh, Major Crimes comes back, and obviously 
you know, Daniels is empowered to go choose whoever he wants. He also, also a huge development. Uh, it is this episode that major crimes becomes not a special detail, but a permanent detail, meaning we're going to see major crimes for the rest of uh, the series because of Daniels asking for it to be a permanent posting in CID in this episode. So, um, and, you know, Daniels was on his way out. Uh, Kima was on her way out. Um, and you see when both of them are are assigned to major crimes and they decide to go do it, Daniels is assigned to lead it in Kima and he goes and grabs Kima. The scene where they're both having these contentious dinners with their significant others. Uh, it, it's just amazing. It, it's <laughs> like they mirror each other. The camera work is great. I love that scene. So which one, um, which, between Kima and Daniels, which one do you think has a more for, forgivable offense, if you will? Kima. It's Kima, Kima. I think so too. Yeah. yeah, it's Kima because yeah, she's Daniel's, always she's been a cop. she was a cop when she met her, so she kind of knew what that came along with, and yeah. it, you know she's young, so it wasn't like she was gonna you know even though I know she's in law school and try to do that, but that's the essence of who she was. But Daniels yeah. put in your papers, and then yeah. you're like, "Psych, I'm not gonna <laughs> like that's yeah. the way." It's a little bit. That's a little more bitter pill to swallow. And Daniels is Marlo Daniels is a little further along. She knows how things work a little bit better. She probably has all kinds of reasons why she wants Cedric up out of there. You know, uh, even in the scene, Marla and Daniels were drinking water, and Kima was drinking. Kima and her girl were drinking wine. So that situation probably gets cleared up a little easier. You know what I mean? After the yeah, wine, that's right. After just right? one more sip, <laughs> she might be forgiven. <laughs> to add on to that scene the scene before that lets you know that Kima is always going to be Kima when she uh, jumps out of the car at the frat boys and arrests them. That was her asserting her independence. You know, obviously they're in traffic, her and her girlfriend, they see some kids wilding out. They ask them to, to, to go ahead and, and, and drive on. The guy is mooning everybody and acting like a stupid frat boy. Kima cannot handle it. She's law and order. She jumps out of the car. She gets busy. And that's also the house cat getting antsy. House cat getting antsy right mm-hmm. there. But there are two scenes that I have as a tie for the best scene in the episode for what they say. One scene is, it's always a good scene between Avon and D'Angelo. This is Avon explained to D'Angelo how uh, spiking uh, the, the, the package that came into the prison um, is going to work out for everyone. D'Angelo, just chill out. We're going to get some, some shit shaved off our time. We good. D'Angelo makes his stand to Avon and says, listen. I don't want no part of what you do no more. You hear me? So you can just leave me the fuck out of that. Whatever it is. That is D'Angelo officially opting out of the Barstale family. I, it is a huge, huge... Number one, it's a father's away for a later moment. I'm going to tell you that right now. It's also just a huge development that after everything, after even Brianna's uh, impassioned plea that D'Angelo has finally, finally had enough. He's... He's had enough. He is done with the with the family business. But there's another scene in here that I love that I think is great as well. When Bunk and Freeman come to the port to try to take Horseface down to the station and interrogate him, Horseface says no. You were the check at work in the Atlantic Light when it docked a couple of weeks back, right? If you say so. You remember that container that came off that day? All the dead girls? No. You don't remember all them dead girls in a can? Come on, horse. I remember when you found them all in the stacks. I don't remember that they came off the Atlantic Light. 
All right, let's take a ride downtown. Clear this mess up. No. Get the fuck in the car. Am I locked up? Get in the damn car. You want me in that car, you need to lock me up. And if that's the way it's going to be, then I want to talk to my shop steward. And he can have an IBS lawyer go with me. That scene is amazing. And I'll tell you why. This You're not in West Baltimore. That demonstrates a clear dividing line between the way the cops were able to exploit kids and other people in the streets of West Baltimore versus guys who are a little older who know their rights, what you can and cannot say uh, to a police officer. It's a very definitive scene of the season because it shows this is a different group that you're dealing with. You're going to have to play it. It's a socioeconomic thing. It's a racial thing. It's a completely different world that we're in. We're in a world now. I remember in the first season, uh, Buck looks at D'Angelo and says, you better bend the fuck over. Yeah. And D'Angelo, you know what I mean? And D'Angelo turns around and he bends over. Maybe, maybe D'Angelo or anybody else feels like if they don't bend over, the cops fuck them up. But the cops are not. They're not about to not, fuck up some union workers. They're not going to fuck up some union workers. They're not going to beat those guys up. They're not going to raise their hand to him. They might paper their cars and do all kinds of stuff around the edges, but they are not going to treat them the same way. And every time I see that scene, I go, number one, good for horse face. And number two, uh, it just shows you the fact that, and, 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 Bunk and, and Bunk and Freeman stand down. It's like, it, it, it was a clear, a clear indication that you're in a different world. Yeah, amazing uh, how much, uh, how differently these interactions go when the police aren't the one, you know, that have the utility belt. Right. It's like yeah. now things are a little more even and, and especially you don't want trouble with a union because, um, you know, they're not just powerful, you know, within the city. When you think about all the people in the union and how they could just shut shit down and make your life uh-huh. a little bit miserable, too. Uh, right. You definitely want to come correct uh, with them and just their presence in general, like them making it known that you're not welcome here. We're not talking to you that they are really presented a much tougher unified front than Freeman and Buck uh, are used to uh, seeing. I mean, Beatty knows it because she sees the dudes every day. She's like, hey, look, mm-hmm. I just I just give them tickets. <laughs> right. So I just take take note of these containers, what's here, what's not. I don't mess with them because she already knows kind of how they get down. I thought the best scene in this episode, and uh, it wasn't quite as dramatic, but I kept thinking about in in game when everybody comes back and it's on your left <laughs> mm-hmm. right and black panther and all everybody comes through and the whole theater is like losing their mind i say i was quite like that but when kima hurt daniels when they all walk into their new unit and prayers is waiting mm-hmm. i was like yeah prayers <laughs> and he's like what kept you <laughs> you know mm-hmm. and they're all reunited right much better offense than they had it, it, even though yeah this one could use a little a little spit and some shine but way better office than, you know, the first time uh, the, right. when they first met up as a detail and even just their growth. I mean, Prez was a dude that almost killed somebody on his first day on the detail. Yeah. His guy went off and now he's like the man and he's kind of come full circle. So I thought that was a really nice moment. Uh, another probably I think the second best scene for me um, was or at least top five is when Ziggy is explaining to Nikki what a digital camera is. You even got any film in that bitch? No, it's digital. 
Oh, I love that. Yeah, I know it's digital, so what? So no film, look. There's a computer chip inside. Take that off, you load the pictures on the computer. Because it reminded me of that scene when Bodie was going to Philadelphia and he had no idea that radio stations mm-hmm. were, that you got a different radio station when you went through a different city. He thought the Baltimore radio station was played everywhere. He had no idea. And it kind of, again, I think David Simon did this on purpose. He wanted to draw these parallels so that people couldn't give themselves the excuse of saying, well, I don't identify. They couldn't look and say, well, I don't identify with these, you know, black characters that are going through this. He gave them basically the same white version to show that Mm -hmm. their world could be just as insulated. They could have seen just as little and been as exposed just as little to somebody who's on the other side of the city. It's no different, really. Mm -hmm. And so the fact that he didn't understand what a digital camera did or what it was or how that was about to be the new wave was very interesting because this is, again, this is early 2000s. Like, digital cameras was hot, you know, back then. And they had no clue. I didn't think they were going to work. I remember having a conversation with my brother going, people going to want to be able to go and put the film and put the cameras in the thing and, you know, put them in picture books and stuff like that. Like, these, I don't think the digital camera is really going to be a thing, man. Like, And my brother was like, yo, he's like, shut up and don't ever tell nobody that you ever said that before. He was like, seriously, that's one. Just put that. He's like, shut up, dog. Because we was getting ready to go out of town. We was going to spring break. He's like, nah, man, I got the digital joint. I was like, nah, I'm just going to get the little click, click, click. You remember the little joint? I do. The you remember the little joint? The little disposable joint? I'm like, nah, I'm just going to, we're going to stop by Eckers and get one of these. A little, he was like, I got a digital camera. You ain't got no zoom. You ain't got, you got nothing. You got to be underneath somebody's chin to get like that. Right. You got nothing. I was like, I was, he's like, no, don't worry about it, bro. But yeah, so I get that. That scene, I have that scene written down. Uh, for something later, that scene. Yeah, resonated. I have a, I have an idea of what you probably have it written down for. Um, right. and also one thing that definitely struck me uh, in terms of 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 good moments when Levy's finessing the system for Avon, I love how Avon is selling this so hard that he's really remorseful about what happened to Kiba. And oh, yeah. he's like, I remember the officer got shot and I remember being upset about it. Like, I remember being upset about it. That's like we see corporate mm-hmm. Avon all of a sudden. Like, who is this dude? Like. He, he's suddenly, he's suddenly he's standing for truth, justice in the American way. Like, oh, okay, right. Avon. He sold that one well. He uh, sold it though. He did. I, I was like, oh man, maybe Avon got a heart. And and finally, I just love that the dock workers keep sending Valcheck pictures of the van. Love it. Jesus, Mary and Joseph. This gives me so much joy because even though Valcheck, uh, this all started from a personal beef and. You know, he's he's all been out of shape about the window and all that kind of stuff. And ultimately, his pettiness did produce a good result. I still think he's an incompetent moron. And I love the fact that the dock workers are rubbing it in every possible second that they can. It's one thing to steal and to send him one picture. The fact that they keep sending him pictures, I think, is just phenomenal. So I agree. I'm here for their brand of petty all day. Um so, uh, Van, anything in this uh, age the best to you? Child support fights. <laughs> Timeless. Timeless. I mean, Nolte and his wife are going back and forth. His ex-wife, I guess it's still his wife, yeah. are going back and forth Estranged about... wife, I believe that's estranged the Estranged wife, the yes. The term they use. Uh, going back and forth about uh, child support and stuff like that. I just heard some... I've heard so many of these fights even lately. 
like what I'm supposed to give up, how much she's supposed to take, how much I'm supposed to take, blah, 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 blah. I just hear, I hear all of this stuff coming from my dogs, man. Good luck to y'all. I hope it works out. Um, but that's, that's one of the things I think that's aged the best. It's just as long as there is dysfunctional families, there are going to be fights about child support. I'm hearing them now. I'm hearing them in this episode. So um, along the same lines of, of interesting gender dynamic, what aged so incredibly well, and will be this will be a fight 100 years from now, is when Nikki's baby mama, Amy, Amy told him to wipe off the seat because I know you hit it. Right. Women been schooling men on toilet etiquette for God knows how long. Y'all just, mm-hmm. I don't understand why y'all don't get certain things. Can y'all just put the lid down? Is it that hard? Can you not it hit is. the toilet? Why y'all? Why is y'all aim so bad? Well, number one, it's early in the morning, and we're not even thinking about it. We got cobwebs in our head. You know what I mean? Yeah, you have we're other issues to, sometimes. Yeah, we have. Yeah, we have cobwebs in our head. We're like, you know, and, and sometimes you know it just won't. And the reality is, that's why. In in Nikki's case, you one thing that will save more relationships than anything is an extra bathroom. That will save relationships. An extra bathroom, like seriously, get if 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 it, that that is one. Almost everything in a relationship you can compromise on, but that's one that if you decide, hey, like get an extra bathroom. This is kind of your little joint. This is kind of my little joint. I'm telling you, that will save your relationship. Because, fellas, she's not always trying to deal with your filth, man. She's not always trying to deal with this. Sometimes you need a boy's bathroom, and then, you know, you can be you can be ridiculed for that. But I, I get that. <laughs> you know, I, I get that. I felt, I felt her pain. Well, the thing is, like, we have, me and my husband, we have a three, we're in a three-bedroom. And we both have, a, we share a bathroom. Right. And then we have a, we both have basically picking picked another bathroom as our second bathroom. Right. right. Okay. Go. And but the thing is, he manages to leave the toilet seat up in all three of them. And I just am just so perplexed as to gotta, how does this be better? How does this happen? Be he'll he'll work oh. on it and then he'll just kind of he'll backslide. Oh, by the way, but he'll backslide. <laughs> <laughs> oh, by the way, shout out to Nikki's girlfriend. Uh, oh, I know why you good. shout there. <laughs> <laughs> good scene. I know why good. you shot her out, man. That, that, like that, there were aspects of that scene that were just perfect. <laughs> really? Yeah, just, there was this, even. Yeah, just yeah, just completely perfect. To even if you talk about what age the best, there are aspects of <laughs> that, that scene with Nikki's girlfriend that just aged perfectly. Like I'm still like, yeah, okay. Okay, yeah. So shout out to her, man. Shout out shout to her. Out to um, one smaller right. thing that I thought aged the best. You always accuse me of not giving String any credit. And you know I don't mm. like to give him credit. But I'm going to give him right. a credit, a small little credit, for an alcohol display slash choice, the Hennessy Privilege sitting on his mm. desk. Well done, Stringer Bell. Well but the done, only thing Stringer your ass Bell. can do well is, is, is big. <laughs> and Hennessy Privilege ages incredibly well. Still good. Uh, anything aged the worst to you? I have a feeling I know where you're going with this. Uh, him explaining the digital camera. I mean, like, it's just like, it, it. it's so crazy just how many pictures I have in this. You know what I mean? And just that that lets you know where we are in terms of 
this episode and where it falls into the history of humanity that someone is saying, and now we never, I never even get the picture. Like we don't get the, I don't feel the picture anymore. The pictures are on, that's where they live here or on this thing right here. So Uh, so photo albums dead along with photoshops. (laughs) Photo albums dead along with photoshops, all of that stuff. So I'd say that that aged the worst for me. What also aged pretty poorly is Tuna Surprise. I don't know if Tuna Surprise was ever in, but Nikki's mother making a Tuna Surprise. I was like, woof, Tuna. Is that a Tuna Casserole? See, I think it's like a Tuna Casserole. The surprise is if you like it. That's the surprise. Where, 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 Where do you fall on Tuna Casserole? So I actually like tuna and I don't, you know, and not just like the seared ahi or yellowtail or whatever, not the fancy joints, but like a a nice little can of albacore tuna with salt and pepper. That could be arranged. And I grew up eating tuna fish. My mother made a tuna salad that was like incredible. Yeah. I would still get down with that. And uh, maybe once in a blue moon, that tuna sub sub from Subway might be hidden. Really? Once in a blue moon. Okay, I'm with yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. I, I, like, I, I like a nice tuna melt. <laughs> I'm, 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 oh, yeah, tuna melt. There you go. Perfect sandwich. A um, lot of file this away for later moments in this one. Um, I think you, you talked about this early. One of the biggest ones for me is the montage they showed of the relationship issues between Kima, Cheryl Daniels, and his wife, Marla. File that away. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah, what are some for you? When Stringer is watching the news report about what happened at the prison, and it starts to, I feel like it starts to sort of materialize in his mind that at a point, this means Avon's coming home a little bit earlier. And if you watch Stringer's reaction to that. It's not a good one. It's not a good one. That's a huge that's a father's great, away for a, later that's moment. That's a good, good, good catch. So, so, I mean, either it's because he knows that there's suppliers in shambles and that he's going to have to explain it to Avon or that uh, we're seeing the sort of initial uh, sort of hesitation of Stringer to completely entrust the Barstow organization back to Avon um, because of, I guess, some differences that him and Avon have in terms of their personality. It's not quite where it's going to go, but that's one that you would definitely, um, definitely want to file, file away uh, for later. And people, um, what you can also, you, you know, read into it, especially knowing what happens in season three, is that at least the, this is the way I took it, just based off his surprise. Not only did he not look excited about the possibility of Avon coming home, it also let me know Avon didn't share that full plan with Stringer, perhaps. Didn't tell him. Not, he didn't not, tell not him. Not the whole thing. Not the yeah, whole he told thing. Him a, he told, told him, him a little bit of it. He told yeah. him about the corrections officer, and he told him about wanting him to ease up on WeeBay, I'm sure. I'm sure he told mm-hmm. him about, about that part. and But I don't think he told him about how he was going to twist the rest of it so that he could get out of jail you know, necessarily. But there, there was a conversation sort of about it. I, I remember when Stringer was, or maybe that was between Avon and uh, Brianna. I'm not sure. But yeah, String String knows that this means this is one of the first things that, that's going to bring Avon home. And it doesn't seem as if right now that he's with that. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if he told him that that, was, that part was his pursuit because obviously Stringer, um, you know, he helped plant the drugs on the correction officer. So this sure. could have been about yeah. either him getting rid of him totally so that he was mm-hmm. not a problem for them anymore inside the prison. Um, and I just, just I, I also thought that that was a curious reaction for him to have uh, acting with a combination of surprise and, oh shit, he's going to actually come home. It could have also been 
damn, it actually worked. Now he's going to come right. home. It could have been one yeah. of those three. But either way, it was not the reaction you might have expected. Um, yeah. Another, you know, file this away of this, you know, pretty obvious just by the fact he was looking for him. Omar reemerging at the end. You be asking for me? It's <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> Definitely. Uh, because it, it is, this is setting this all up for an epic moment that is coming uh, one of with, the best scenes in Wire history. Yeah. I mean, you. I, I'm not mad at anybody who ranks it number one. Not mad at all. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. Not mad at all. Um, yeah. Speaking of Stringer, as we were just talking about, never ceases to amaze me. Oh, Stringer, you lording your community collegeness over all of your subordinates. Always such a treat for me to see. <laughs> I love the look on your face right now. I, I want people to know this. I'm not against community colleges. I'm not. My mother has an associate's degree. Um, you know, she's since gotten her her master's, but like she started there too. I am not against community colleges. What I am against is elitism. That's what I'm against. All right. And Stringer, who is just because you take a few courses, that doesn't mean you a member of Mensa. And he apparently thinks that he, he said he had to go study for a midterm. But that wasn't that wasn't the part. Let me tell you the part. What part are you talking about? The part is when he was talking to Rock. And uh, he's at his desk scribbling his little notes. I see him with a little highlighter. I see all that. And he's like, you know what subtle means? means? He's like, yeah, lay back and shit. shit. Like, really, dude? When he told him to be subtle, you know what subtle means? I hate people like that. That when you, I've seen people do that in real life. They use a word and they'll be like, you know what that means? Well, motherfucker, if you're confused about if I know what the word means, why the hell you using it? That's true. Language is a tool. You use the right tool for the right job. But I'll say this. He's just trying to raise the level of vocabulary. <laughs> oh, the vocabulary so important him. to their yeah. jobs. So important. Yeah. You never know, man. Why why you assume that these brothers don't want to be more than what they are, they man? Don't or he's not, if not more, lecturing them about their different. vocabulary. Like, don't nobody nobody <laughs> likes a micromanager, Van. Nobody likes one. It's true. He's a, at the same time. Nobody likes though, a little stringer, teacher pet. He's just trying to better himself and better the men around him. I'm not saying that using words like subtle necessarily makes you better. <laughs> That's the other thing. He thought subtle. He was really putting somebody up on game. Oh, one syllable, normalized ass word. Like, really? You think somebody's never heard the word subtle? Come on, man. That's just string. That's your boy. Hit him, hit him with boy. a harder word next time. But I, I love, I love string. Even it had at least three syllables, some shit they had to look up. All right. I'd have gave it you to you. What? I like to I, I like to bring out bifurcate. Like when I wanna when I'm in a place and I wanna like I was just listen, try try to bifurcate this issue. Ooh. Ooh. Did you say what is that? Oh wow, bifurcate. Oh, that's, that's a scrabble good. word. That's a scrabble word, that's a baby. Scrabble I like bifurcate. Uh for those counting at home, two cigars for Buck and this one. So you know some serious detectiving was going on if he had to have two smokes. Um yep. a little bit of trivia for you let's go so uh the wire was not beloved by baltimore very contentious relationship so much so that uh the mayor at the time martin o'malley threatened to pull all the permits for the show for season two uh Interesting. yes he said that baltimore wanted quote out of the wire business and the police commissioner of uh baltimore at the time said the wire was direct quote a smear on the city um, mm. And unfortunately, that mayor uh, of Baltimore became governor 
And he also let his disdain be known for the show. The show actually started shooting outside of Baltimore because the city stopped giving them incentives to shoot in Baltimore. And they argued one of the reasons they did it is because it hurt tourism because people were seeing the show that that depicted Baltimore and all this blight. And they did not like what this said about their city. Um, you think their criticisms were fair, Van? Uh. <laughs> yes and no. Right. Um. If if listen, I was in Baltimore and uh, outside of an area outside of Johns Hopkins that was a little bit sketchy. Um. I thought the city was absolutely beautiful. I, I really did. Like I thought. I thought Baltimore looked like you remember being from down south. It's a completely different cultural fear, uh, 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 uh cultural field than that big bay kind of wharf area that they have with all of those nice it's kind of like a san francisco type of thing all those nice restaurants and all of that stuff and like camden yards is beautiful um and and all of that stuff uh and so with the wire was a different part of baltimore for me and i didn't and you know I, I didn't realize that it existed so when i think about baltimore now having not had that much experience with baltimore my mind kind of thinks about the wire a little bit. I mean, like it, 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 it does. I don't have very much experience with the city and the, 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 the version of the city that you get, uh, obviously deals with a lot of the themes of the show. And those themes aren't, you know, complimentary. They, they talk about, you know, things that exist in cities everywhere. I mean, to be honest with you, if you did a show about new Orleans, you could do two different shows. You could do a seven war show, or you could do a garden district show. If you did a show about Baton Rouge, you could do two different shows. You could do a, a show in the bottom and you could do a show in Bocage or you could do a, a, a show in, in the country club. I mean, that exists with every city. It just depends on you know what it is that you're covering. So, I mean, I, I see why Baltimore wouldn't experience a boom in tourism. Were they uh, anyway? After the wire. After the wire. But at the same time, I think that the show has done a tr- tremendous amount in terms of the reputation of the city because it's made it a cultural landmark. It's made the city um, the setting of, uh, you know, the greatest television show that's ever been created. So I see it both ways. I can see what he's talking about. I understand the residents' frustration. Um, Look, the only time I ever used to see Detroit on the news was we were usually on the national news for two reasons. One, when the murder rate came out for all the cities in America, because we were usually in the top three, Uh often number one. And the other time is we used to have this horrible tradition in Detroit. They called it Devil's Night, where people would light all the abandoned buildings on fire. And so the city would be burning. And I'm not talking about 10 or 20 fires. I'm talking hundreds of fires across the city. And people used to joke in the city that we were reenacting the riots every year. And so um, so I I definitely understand. Wow. Is that where that D12 song comes from? That D12, it says it's Devil's Night? Yeah. Devil's Night. Yep. Oh, wow. Yeah, that was a real thing. That. Yeah, so you yeah. couldn't even really, I mean, you couldn't really, my mother was very wary about letting me trick-or-treat on, on on Devil's Night because people were throwing Molotov cocktails and abandoned houses and just lighting shit on fire just because. So I definitely understand about when there's this national negative per- perception of your city and when something comes along that you feel like feeds that perception, you tend to rail against it, even if it is rooted in a lot of truth. But I think that we're looking at it a little one-sided. And again, I realize easy for me to say because I don't live in Baltimore and I'm not from there, that it allowed people to have a lot more empathy for Baltimore. And mm. once, because he's giving us this completely 
360 view of all the problems that are there. And it's not that there are bad residents, it's that they have bad leadership and bad systems. And mm. this is the result of that. The other thing they're forgetting, I gotta be honest, like from a food tip, shit, I would totally want to go to Baltimore. <laughs> Pit beef. Pit beef. Lake trout. Yep. Uh, the Lake trout carry out, all of that stuff like that. I want to try all of that stuff, man. I'm going there. A food weekend in Baltimore. Oh, for man. Sure. It, I mean, they made all the food seem like amazing. You know, when, right. when Bunk and Minolte, when he caught those crabs in the... In the oh, dude, that's like... Cool. That, Bro, that is one of the when they eating them crabs in there, bro. That is that looked amazing with some saying? MGD from a food yeah. standpoint. Hey, Baltimore, the wire represented. Okay, so yeah, I'm in. I'm with you. Um, all right, finally, drum roll. Who won the episode, man? Uh, I'm going with Bubbles. It was it was tight for me. It was between Bubbles and Daniels. Um, I could have easily gone with Sabaka just because I feel like Sabaka. Um. This was a very Sabaka episode, Nikki Sabaka, Sabaka episode. But I go with Bubbles because Bubbles had a big task to do in, in the episode, and he got it done. It just, once again, kind of showed you the genius of Bubbles. They already, Bubbles is the most functional character in a wire. Like, he, he, like, they bring Bubbles in. Most of the time, Bubbles has a job. Bubbles goes and he does his job. And once again, uh, in this episode, he is tasked to find Omar. It's a scary task. It's not an easy task. And he does that. So I, I gave it to Bubbles. And, and he, wait, and he, and he finds him while nodding out at the same time. It, while nodding out at the same amazing. time. It's pretty amazing. It's multitasking. So yeah, I gave it to Bubbles. Yeah, he is the hood superhero. Not the one you deserve, but the one you definitely need. That is Bubbles. Right. I'm going to say Ziggy won this episode. Interesting. Your, you know, I'd never. Your boy. Because Ziggy got a new $2,000 Italian leather coat, right? Mm -hmm. Of which he has chosen to wear it to work. Ultimate right. flex. He took a picture of his you-know-what, and then he put it on somebody's computer that spilled coffee yeah. on it. Yeah. That's a win. Yeah. That's a win. Right. Right? So right now, you co-sign on sexual harassment in the workplace. <laughs> cool. Like, it's, it's cool. I won't open any emails. Negative. I won't open any emails from you. You could like you like you you co-sign on sexual harassment in the workplace right now. It's cool. I get it. I get it. You just, just remember found a way to just twist it. Hashtag, hashtag men too. Remember that one? Remember the men too hashtags? You know what? I'm victim player. Right. Don't go around right. throwing coffee on people's two thousand dollar Italian coats. Italian right. leather coats. Yeah, it's true. Then it's maybe true. you won't open your email and get an attachment. Of somebody's uh, attachment. How about uh, that? Somebody's attachment, yeah. <laughs> How about that? <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> Let's both sides this thing. <laughs> exactly. Anyway, uh, that wraps up this episode of Way Down in the Hole. And we have, as we've broken it down to the very last compound of this episode in season two, up next, episode five. So make sure you keep listening to us and keep watching The Wire. We'll see y'all later. Peace. Shut up and don't ever tell nobody that you ever said that. <laughs>